Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Daniel Weiss, your new book, In That Time, opens with a poem that was composed on New Year's Day in 1970. Because it frames the book, I'd like you to frame our conversation by reading it. I would be happy to. It's uh, titled Letters from Pleiku. If you are able, save for them a place inside of you, and save one backward glance when you are leaving for the places they can no longer go. Be not ashamed to say you love them, though you may or may not have always. Take what they have left and what they have taught you with their dying, and keep it with your own. And in that time, when men decide and feel safe to call the war insane, take one moment to embrace those gentle heroes you left behind. Michael O'Donnell, January 1st, 1970. Who was Michael O'Donnell? Michael O'Donnell was a young man who found himself in Vietnam in 1969 and 1970. He was a songwriter and a poet and a helicopter pilot, and ultimately a hero and a casualty of the Vietnam War. How did you encounter his poetry? I first came across it in a book called The American Century by Harold Evans, and I was just leafing through the book. There is a section on the Vietnam War, and in that section there's a small photograph of Michael O'Donnell, and below that it just said this young man wrote this poem on January 1st, 1970, the poem I just read. And below that it said that uh, shortly after writing this poem, his helicopter was shot down on a rescue mission, and he remains missing in action. That book was published about 20 years ago, and at that time, Michael was still recorded as missing in action. I was very curious about who this young man was. The poem moved me deeply, and I wanted to learn more about why he wrote it, who he was, what the story was behind the poem. And one thing led to another, and here we are. 20 years of effort. So how did the book come about at this particular time? Well, initially, I was just struck by the poem and curious to learn more. I suppose at some level I was taken by his request that we remember people who served in Vietnam, including him. So I began to do some investigating. I am an academic and a scholar by profession, and I was curious to just learn more about him. And as I did, I began to meet the people that had been in his world, his best friend, his sister, as I was doing my investigation. At that time, I wasn't sure what I would do with this information. My thought was maybe to write an article about it. I didn't really have a full vision in my mind. And then I put the material away as my career unfolded. And about two and a half or three years ago, I decided I really wanted to finish this book. I wanted to write this book because I felt very strongly that the story needs to be told, that there was, the more I reflected on Michael's life and his experience and what he can teach us through his own story and his poetry, I felt like I wanted to tell that story. And a way to do that began to present itself in my mind. So I set aside some time and made a plan and wrote the book. Could you write 
a similar book about any one of the 58,000 who perished, or is there something special about Michael O'Donnell? No, I think what's especially compelling about Michael is at one level he was one of 58,220 American casualties of the war. But at, the, at another level, he wrote poetry about it. He had a very interesting and, and I think in some ways very distinctive point of view about the experience he was living because he was a helicopter pilot flying in and out of the worst battles of the war. And then he had the capacity as a poet to write about that. So he recorded those experiences. And over time, he began to see as he was writing and experiencing the war that the odds were increasing he wasn't going to survive the war. And he wrote about that too. So I think in many ways he was illustrative of, of young people who were caught up in that war in the 1960s. But in many ways he was otherwise exceptional, I think. He was born on August 13, 1945. You describe him as the quintessential post-war baby. What does that mean? Well, he was born in an era that understood, on the one hand, that war was something that took four years, that tended to, uh, that is one reflected on the World War II experience. There was a great victory there, great of course, great sacrifice and great cost, but he understood something about the world he lived in as based on being really his family and his own life were informed by the Second World War. There was a period of great prosperity that followed the war, so his parents were, were very well positioned, his life was very comfortable, he wanted for nothing, he lived in uh, exciting and positive environments, he could indulge his own interests, and that was really in many ways what, the, what that period was like for most young Americans. And Vietnam was something on the horizon nobody saw it coming. As you describe them, it sounds like they might have been um, more than middle class. Or, or is his family well-to-do? They were, uh, I would say, upper middle class. His father was a professional. He was an industrial psychologist, and he was uh, his career progressed rather nicely. So Michael moved several times throughout his childhood to ever fancier houses, and then he went to high school in Shorewood, Wisconsin which was a very nice neighborhood. He lived in a lovely house. He went to a very good high school. And he, uh, in many ways, he was living the American dream at the time. Siblings? He had one sister, Patsy, who was two years older, who was uh, uh, also in that environment. And um, she became, of course, the steward of his legacy for all those decades after he was shot down. You tell us that he had uh, a challenge with his educational pursuits. So yes. uh, how did he finally find himself? Well, like a lot of kids, he was obviously very bright and very curious about the world, but not particularly interested in school, and he was never a distinguished student. In high school, he was very social. He was an athlete, and he was uh, on the cross-country team and the wrestling team, and he was, had lots of friends, but he didn't do especially well in school. And in college, he was increasingly interested in the music scene, which is really in the early 1960s. He arrived in college in the fall of 1963, months before John F. Kennedy was assassinated. And he was caught up in the folk music movement. He was interested in, in everything that went with that. But he wasn't particularly interested in school. So he was an indifferent student, but a very good songwriter. And he, he devoted all of his time and energy to that. He made an school. important friend through music. Would you tell me about that friend? Yes. So uh, right around the time of, in November of 1963, just after Kennedy was assassinated, or maybe it was December, I guess, uh, Michael had written a song about the assassination. He was already a musician, and he was performing it at University of Wisconsin-Whitewater, where he was a freshman. And Marcus Sullivan, who was also a, an accomplished musician, who was a sophomore, saw him performing that and was very taken by Michael's music because unlike all of the other kids there, 
he was writing and performing his own music. He wasn't just playing Peter, Paul, and Mary and Bob Dylan. He was writing his own music. So they met, and they became very good friends really quickly. And they both recognized, I think, within hours that theirs would be an epic friendship, that there was something very special in their bond. They decided as well to perform music together. They wrote music together and performed it. They harmonized beautifully, and they were the best of friends in no time at all. Because you got to know uh, Michael through his writings, and you have, have actually known Marcus Sullivan over the years through working on this, what, what did you learn about that friendship? What, was, what, what drew them together? Well, I think in the first instance, what drew them together was a love of music. And I now, of course, I know Michael O'Donnell very... I never met him, but I know, know him very well from the record of his other relationships and from his letters and his poems and his music. And I've been a very good friend of Marcus Sullivan now for 15 years. And I think they were very sympathetic characters. They loved music. They had great sense of humor and a great sense of adventure. They discovered these same joys at the same time in their lives... In some ways, there's nothing like the best friends you meet in college at this moment in your life when everything's in front of you. There's enormous possibility and potential. They saw that in each other and in the world around them. And they, uh, it, they, they loved each other deeply very quickly. I think um, Michael was in many ways the more outgoing one. He was extraordinarily charismatic. He could be a prankster or a troublemaker. He never, ever was accused of anything that stuck. He was just a lovable kid. And Marcus saw that in him and liked that. But they were just, um, I think, young people together at a very happy time in their lives. Would you have been a friend of Michael's, you think? I probably would have liked him. I'm not a musical guy, so I wouldn't have made the team. But I would have... Uh, I, I Well, it's, I've gotten to know him well, as I say, through my own research. And there was something really quite wonderful about his character. And it comes through in all of these ways that we talk about in his, uh, the record of his letters and his poems and his songs, and especially the people that loved him, whom I, of course, have come to know really well. He was a very special person and well worth the effort I put into getting to know him. In addition to telling Michael's story, Michael O'Donnell's story, you also trace the history of U.S. involvement in Vietnam. I, I want to go through some of what you've told us in that. Before we do, though, who did you write this book for? It's a wonderful question. I wrote the book for people who would be interested in a human interest story about a compelling American kid who got caught up in one of the great tragedies in American history. And ultimately, I wanted to write a book that would engage people in all aspects of that story, that is to say, the, the period of the 1960s. I don't see this book as a war story. I don't really see it as a book about poetry. But it's a human interest story about what happened to Michael O'Donnell and therefore to all of us in the 1960s. So the reader is you. It's my mother. It's my friends. It's people who, who care about the American story. The Vietnam story actually begins in the 1950s with Harry Truman. So if you wouldn't mind, I'd like to have you briefly walk our audience through each of the Vietnam-era presidents' involvement with that conflict. So what sure. was Truman's approach to it? Well, so Harry Truman was... Uh, confronted, like all of his successors were, with the problem of expansion of communism. There was, in the 1950s, the very real belief that communism was a great toxic influence on the world and that it must be contained like a virus needs to be contained. And so Harry Truman felt that uh, his great concerns were Eastern Europe and the advance of communism out of the Soviet Union and in, uh, in Asia and the, the advance uh, throughout Indochina, that region where communism could expand from China. And 
the strategy he developed was called containment. And the idea there was not to confront an act of war, to go actively uh, committing lives and, and everything that goes with war, but to try to contain the advance of this, um, this really toxic political development that was seen to be a threat to American democracy and capitalism. So containment was the strategy he put in place, and his goal was to do as little as he had to to contain that without distracting American resources or the military. And he passed that on to Dwight Eisenhower as his strategy. People will remember of that era. Also hearing about the domino theory. Yes. Is that the same as containment? It is. The containment was a way of, of preventing the domino theory. And so it was understood that if one nation falls and communism takes root, then the next one will fall. And after a while, this virus will take over the world. What no one really saw coming was that ultimately communism was not a sustainable phenomenon. It was not a political movement that was capable of sustaining itself. But at that time, people didn't know that. So it was a very real threat for Harry Truman and his administration. And then Dwight Eisenhower in 1952, when he was elected, took on the same set of challenges that Truman did. He, of course, had the successfully led World War II strategy. So when he took over the reins and was responsible for U.S. policy, how did he fulfill it? Well, I think his political point of view wasn't radically different from Truman's, particularly with regard to communism in Southeast Asia. So his view was to contain the advance of communism in much the same way. No one wanted to commit high levels of uh, American military resources or funding or lives. That wasn't the goal. The goal was to do what we have to do to contain this problem while we focus on other greater issues. Everyone was more interested in the 1950s in Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union than they were in Southeast Asia. But the theory was that these small countries would fall one by one, and before we knew it, all of Asia would be uh, dominated by the communist movement. So Eisenhower really continued Truman in that, in that way, hoping to just minimize the damage and carry on with other initiatives. You recount that in 1954, the French defeat at Dien Bien Phu changed everything. Uh, why did that change uh, the policy so much? Well, the Vietnamese, uh, rather the French, had been in Vietnam, Vietnam for a very long time. And in Dien Bien Phu in 1954, it was the first evidence that uh, that, that movement wasn't working and that the French had been completely defeated. So someone had to step in to address what was still seen as a very real risk of the advance of communism in Vietnam. And if the French were not to be there, then someone had to. And the Americans took that responsibility directly because that was the uh, sense of American exceptionalism in the 1950s. Our job is to preserve the world for democracy. And if the French can't do it, then we will step in. So Eisenhower did have to escalate his commitment there as a result of that, for du sure. During those uh, first two presidents involved in the policy, our commitment was in the form of military advisors. Uh, who were they advising? They were advising the South Vietnamese Army. And so after the division of Vietnam uh, from North and South, and the South was seen to be allied with the, uh, with the democratic values and the Americans, our job was to advise, the American job was to advise the South Vietnamese Army and how to conduct warfare and what tactics and strategy would help to, be, to contain the advance of the North Vietnamese and the Viet Cong, who were allied with the North Vietnamese in South Vietnam all under the direction of the very charismatic Ho Chi Minh. And so that was the goal. So during the presidency of John F. Kennedy, those number of advisors grew from 900 to 16,000. Yes. What was the policy that drove that big expansion? 
I think uh, for Kennedy, this was also a kind of reluctant um, acquiescence to the reality of the problem in Vietnam. That is to say, Kennedy did not take on an active policy of bringing troops to Vietnam or trying to escalate the war there or the conflict there, but rather to contain it as well. But increasingly, it was clear they had to, to send more American troops to advise larger numbers of South Vietnamese soldiers in order to contain what was increasingly a successful initiative on the part of the Viet Cong and the North Vietnamese. So Kennedy was a very cautious military leader throughout his administration following the Bay of Pigs. And he, I think it's clear from the record that he reluctantly made decisions to increase advisors in Vietnam, but never wanting to engage in war there. But it's true by the time his administration, by the time he had been killed, the numbers had increased exponentially. We have any records to indicate what direction his policy would have gone if he'd lived? There is no obvious record, just the testimony of those who worked for him and the record of his own actions otherwise. My own view from having read all of the, of the material I did in preparation for this book was that Kennedy would absolutely not have allowed himself to escalate the war in anything like the way Lyndon Johnson did. Because, as I said, he was a cautious leader. As I say in the book, he was first and foremost a politician. So he was very attentive to public interest. He, he was uh, very concerned about the long-term consequences of near-term decisions. I think he was traumatized by the Bay of Pigs decision he made quite impulsively as soon as he became president, taking the word of his advisors perhaps more to heart than he should have. And so I think he would have navigated Vietnam much more carefully. That said, it isn't obvious with the information they had at the time Communism was seen as a very real threat to the world, and it may be it's much easier 30 years later to reflect on the, the fact that communism wasn't a sustainable phenomenon, but that back then it was seen as one. So I think he would not have done what happened, but he also wouldn't have gotten us out of the war instantly either. The world would have been a very different place. By November of 1963, how aware was the American public generally about our commitment at all in Vietnam? It was, it was increasingly in the news, but it was not a major story in the same way it would soon become. Uh, I think, as, as you observed, there were 16,000 American troops in Vietnam at the time he was assassinated, which is a very small number compared to deployments of American troops elsewhere in the world at that time, in Eastern Europe and Korea. So I don't think it wasn't a major story. It was something increasingly looming on the horizon. Um, but a year later, of course, it was a very big story. Our first video to add to the conversation here is Lyndon Johnson, August 4th, 1964, the Gulf of Tonkin resolution he's talking about. Let's watch and use that as a way for you to explain how LBJ approached the Vietnam War. Renewed hostile actions against United States ships on the high seas in the Gulf of Tonkin have today required me to order the military forces of the United States to take action in reply. This new act of aggression aimed directly at our own forces again brings home to all of us in the United States the importance of the struggle for peace and security in Southeast Asia. What do we need to know now about the Gulf of Tonkin Resolution? Well, there are really two things, I think. The first is the historical record remains very unclear as to what actually happened to the two American servicemen that precipitated the Gulf of Tonkin Resolution. 
whether they were actually attacked in the way the president described is an open question, and I think there's great skepticism about what he actually reported. So there was deceit involved in what the president shared with the United States about the basis for the Gulf of Tonkin resolution. But the second is that Congress took very seriously the claim that the president made that he needed to have the authority and the independence to act quickly in defense of American interests. So Senator Fulbright, a very prestigious and important member of the Senate and a member of the Democratic Party, was the floor leader who helped to bring this resolution to a successful conclusion, giving the president carte blanche to wage war. And no one anticipated in the Senate that he would take, that the president would take that authority as far as he did. So I think the great lesson one has to learn is that the balance of powers function in a way to protect American interests, even in war, and that if given too quickly and too powerfully, the president uh, could abuse those powers. Do we know now President Johnson's motivation? Well, I explore these questions in my book, and there's a, there's a great industry of reflections on what exactly the president was trying to accomplish. But I think my own view on this is that Johnson was, uh, first of all, he was a new president thrust into a situation that was beyond his own experience. He was, on the one hand, intimidated by the very high-powered, intellectually gifted advisors John Kennedy had around him, who were then Lyndon Johnson's advisors. He wanted to appear decisive and strong, but his real interest and his real ambition was, throughout his presidency, his domestic agenda. He was not a foreign policy president. He wanted to change society the way Franklin Roosevelt did with the New Deal in the United States. That was his greatest commitment. And so he was looking, I think, for expedient action to address this irritating problem in Southeast Asia, that if he could just make it go away by leveraging American military resources quickly and powerfully, then he could return America's attention to the domestic agenda. That was a, really the result, therefore, of inexperience and an inability to think carefully about the long-term consequences of these near-term actions. So ultimately, um, once he made that decision, once he initially decided to escalate the war as he had, he got himself going on a path that he found very difficult to retreat from. He put uh, General William Westmoreland in charge of the effort, and you describe uh, what was happening as a catastrophic treadmill for the United States. Yes, I think Westmoreland was in, in many ways the exemplary military leader to have uh, at that time. So we're still in an environment where World War II was the dominant military experience of that generation. Westmoreland understood how to wage war, at least in the conventional sense. He was highly decorated. He was a, a one of the highest level graduates of West Point. He was a military superstar. He achieved the rank of ma major general more quickly than anyone ever had in American military history. And so he was chosen by Lyndon Johnson to lead this war because he was a soldier soldier. He didn't know anything about how to wage a counterinsurgency war in a place like Vietnam. So he had a strategy called um, a strategy uh, search and destroy uh, to win a war of attrition. Beat the Vietnamese everywhere you can find them, the Viet Cong and the North Vietnamese. Decimate their troops, overrun their sites, and then retreat back to the territory that the Americans possessed, not to win a war of territory as the World War II was. And as a result, everywhere they would fight, they would win the battle, but ultimately lose the longer-term engagement because they didn't win the territory, they didn't win the hearts and minds of the people around them. And they didn't, couldn't even find the enemy. So as they incre committed increasing level of troops to this enterprise in uh, South Vietnam, where they were fighting, they found that they had to 
continue to grow their resources to achieve ever-diminishing victories, and that was not sustainable. And of course, in order to do that, it was a time of drafting young men to fight into the war. What did that do to the sentiment at home? Well, ultimately, to fuel this enterprise, they had to implement a draft, and as a result, no longer would, were people who, no longer would there's a kind of self-selection for engagement in the war where people would decide to go if they wished to, but everybody was, was therefore at risk. And so the entire country began to pay much more attention to what was happening in Vietnam because their children, or they themselves, were, could very well be chosen to go fight this war. And with the advent of the draft, and in very short order, hundreds of thousands of American citizens were being drafted, the entire country took notice of what was happening there. And it changed everything about public discourse with regard to the war. In the midst of that draft, Michael O'Donnell decided to enlist. Why, why yes. did he make that decision? Michael enlisted because, as I said earlier, he was an indifferent student. He wasn't really enjoying college. He, uh, he saw all around him the draft was taking his friends. This was something in, in the mid-1960s that was ever-present on the minds of everyone, but particularly young men of draftable age. So Michael thought, after all, he was, I don't know, 21 years old at the time. He, he wasn't the wisest of young people. He wasn't doing very well in school. He was worried that he would be drafted. So he had the idea that if he enlisted, he could learn to become a helicopter pilot, which he had heard about from a friend of his from high school. And that in learning to be a helicopter pilot, one, he would develop a skill that might be useful to him someday. After all, aviation was an industry. And two, the amount of time it takes really to learn to fly a helicopter is years. And in his own mind, wars don't last that long. So by the time he was be trained to fly a helicopter, the odds were high that the war itself would be over. That was his calculation. That was his decision at the time. Sounds exceedingly logical. Logical, and, and um, it was logical under the circumstances, given the risks that were very real that he perceived. And almost immediately after he enlisted, his best friend Marcus was drafted, in some ways simply adding uh, some cre credibility to the decision Michael made, that there was risk everywhere. So Marcus's war experience sent him where? Marcus decided not to become a helicopter pilot, but to just accept the draft. And he went. Uh, he became a combat engineer, and he served in Vietnam for a year, as was the obligation of draftees, to serve one year in Vietnam. And he stayed safe, and he did his job, and he came home. And by the time he came home and the war was behind him, Michael was still training to be a helicopter pilot. The helicopter that he flew was called the Huey, nicknamed the Huey. What was its role in the Vietnam War? Well, for anyone who lived through the Vietnam War at any level, the Huey, also known as, uh, the, the, it was also called a slick because the helicopter he flew had no guns that were visible on the surface, so it, was, it just looked like a, a Huey and not a gunship. It, that was the kind of ubiquitous image of the war. They were used, helicopters were used for everything in the war in Vietnam. They were used to transport soldiers quickly and efficiently to wherever the fighting was. Because this ultimately was not a war of territory, military leaders would select the locations where they would have battles, and then they would move large numbers of troops very quickly in these helicopters to the site of the battle, wherever it was in South Vietnam. They were also used to wage the war, so the helicopters were also gunships, and they would fly to wherever the battle was and use their weapons to wage war. They were also used to clear battle sites, uh, Agent Orange and Napalm, these terrible chemicals that were used during the war, 
in order to clear the foliage from a place where they needed to have greater visibility into the enemy. So they would drop these tons and tons of toxic chemicals all over our own soldiers and the enemy and the, the forests and jungles beneath them. Helicopters did all of that. And then ultimately, they also were used to rescue the, the injured and to bring back the dead. And Michael spent a lot of time as a helicopter pilot transporting soldiers into battle and rescuing them and recovering the bodies of the dead. What was the time in which he enlisted and, be and began his training? So he enlisted in 1965, um, and he trained throughout the late 1960s, and in October of 1969, he was deployed in Vietnam. It took four years. To four train. years to be trained. To he, he was trained to be an officer first, and then he was trained to be a helicopter pilot thereafter. During that period of time, he reconnected with another person who was very important to his story, a woman by the name of Jane Hoge, is it? Jane Hogue. Hogue. Yes. So who was she, and why is he important to Michael O'Donnell's story? They were classmates in high school at Shorewood, and when Michael was training to be a helicopter pilot at Fort Rucker in Alabama, he wasn't very far located from where Jane was a graduate student at the University of uh, South Florida. So they reconnected somehow. I'm not sure how that exactly happened, but they reestablished contact, and they began a romance, a very intensive romance, and Michael had a fair amount of time on weekends during his training period where he could go visit Jane, and uh, by her account, they had a wonderful period of several months together, perhaps about six months together, while he was training, and their romance bloomed. They fell in love. They planned to get married after he returned from the war, and it was a magical time in both of their lives. Did they discuss marrying before he went to war? Yes. They, uh, they talked about getting married as the plan when he returned. His obligation, like Marcus's, was to serve for one year in Vietnam as a helicopter pilot. So the intention was that when he, he returned, they would establish their lives together. They would marry. Marcus and Michael would resume their musical partnership. And they would get on with the career they envisioned for themselves, which was a very big musical career. How, by the way, did his parents react to his decision to enlist? No one really close to him could understand why he did this. They all thought the, the draft was a very real risk, but better to calculate the, that, to live with that risk than to enlist. So Michael's parents were devastated. His uh, and mother, in particular, was, was just mortified that her son was going to be going into this terrible war that they all saw as a, a military disaster. Michael's sister, who had just been selected for the Peace Corps, Patsy, she was about to leave the country to go serve her country as a member of the Peace Corps. And when Michael decided to enlist, and there was the very real risk he would be in Vietnam, uh, his parents, their parents, persuaded Patsy not to join the Peace Corps because they could not imagine both of their children to be abroad in dangerous places at the same time. So Patsy gave up on her dream of being in the Peace Corps. Michael went into helicopter training, and everyone made their peace with it, but it was not a happy moment. His deployment in October of 1969 was the 170th Ben-Hoa Assault Helicopter Company. Yes. Uh, where were they deployed, and who were the most important people in that part of his life? When he first arrived, he was deployed at the, the 170th was based at Camp Holloway, which was in the central highlands of Vietnam. And um, it was a very large base. About 10,000 soldiers were there. So it was a small city that he was initially deployed to. The conditions there, as he reported in letters to Marcus and Patsy and others, weren't bad. That it was, uh, he had hot showers, he had hot meals, it wasn't a bad place. The base was relatively safe. It was a pretty large community. Their missions were dangerous. Of course, they were flying into 
territories where there was great danger. But for the first two months or so, he was at Holloway. And then his unit was deployed further to the north in a much more dangerous territory, in Khantoum, uh, near Pleiku. And this was an area that was um, in the central highlands of Vietnam, but further to the north, completely remote, surrounded by the enemy, in a much smaller number of American troops were there. And there they saw danger every single day, including, for reasons no one could quite fathom, that base was attacked by missiles almost every single day. And Jim Lake, who was a colleague of Michael's in Vietnam and uh, a fellow helicopter pilot, described this to me, that every day, for reasons that were not clear, at around dinner time, the missiles would start to fly. They were very large, telephone pole-sized missions, according to Jim Lake, and they sounded like freight trains, and they were wildly inaccurate, so they almost never hit anything that they were aimed for but it was almost like a fireworks show that they were exposed to every day of the war. This was, as I say, in Khantoum, a very different kind of territory. But the, psycholog <coughs> excuse me, the psychological toll had to be enormous on the people working there. It was. I think uh, for Michael, his spirit really turned a corner when he got to Khantoum, and all of the soldiers who served there would report the same thing. They were really on the front lines of an unwinnable war at a time in the history of the war when victory was out of the question and survival was really all that one could hope for. This was by, the, by early 1970. There was no question that Vietnam would not be a victory for the Americans by this time. So they would every day fly their helicopters into battle, see casualties occurring all around them, bring back the injured and the dead, return to their base, and then experience these missile attacks every night on their base. So there was no respite from the war day and night. For them. But Michael O'Donnell's respite was his poetry. That is why, where he found respite. He would return to the base at the end of each day and clean up his helicopter and go back to, to have a shower and have dinner. And then when many of his colleagues were in the bar having drinks, which is what they tended to do each evening to try to forget the war, Michael sat at his little desk in his barracks and wrote poetry. He had a little typewriter, a little manual typewriter that he brought with him, and he would write this poetry to try to make sense of his experience. And it was during those months, as he was writing this poetry, that it began to be clear to him that uh, a successful outcome from him in the war was unlikely. And he wrote poetry about that. If uh, one were to read his poetry today, what would you find in it? What are some of the themes that would echo through? I think the most powerful theme is the sense of loss and hopelessness in the heart and mind of a really wonderful young man who had so much idealism and joy that went into this war, and this war killed it. And you can see in his poetry how he's trying to make sense of what it means to be 23, 24 years old and recognize that your life is likely to end any day and that you're doing it for a cause no one believed in and that your sacrifice and the sacrifice of your friends, which he witnessed every day, was going to be unappreciated and unrecognized by the people you were doing it for, the American people. So he wrote about that. And I think poetry was a creative way for him to try to find beauty in tragedy. That is ultimately to create something that was, um, that had enduring meaning for him and for others in the face of an environment where there was nothing good, nothing positive, nothing to look forward to. So I think ultimately that core of idealism in him, that creative energy in him, 
needed to find expression somewhere. And it was at his little typewriter in his dark little barracks at the end of every day. Did he share his poetry with his fellow combatants? Did he send it home to his family? He shared very little with his fellow combat combatants, but they all knew he was writing it. And Jim Lake and others said how much they appreciated it because they knew that Michael was trying to tell their story. He brought his guitar with him to Vietnam, so he made a good face of it. He, wrote, he performed music for them. He was a lovable, fun-loving guy on the outside. They recognized that they had in him someone who was a, a compelling, charismatic figure who loved them and cared about this experience. And they believed that the poetry he was writing would matter. But he didn't share it with them. He didn't read it to them. He did share it most first and foremost with Marcus, his best friend back at home. And so he would write his poems and pack them up and send them in an envelope to Marcus for Marcus to look at and read. He talked about making music again when he eventually would return. But Marcus was his primary audience. So uh, Michael O'Donnell's ultimately fatal mission was a result of a change in U.S. policy that occurred under President Richard Nixon. Our next video, April 30th, 1970, President Nixon talking about Cambodia. In cooperation with the armed forces of South Vietnam, attacks are being launched this week to clean out major enemy sanctuaries on the Cambodian-Vietnam border. We take this action not for the purpose of expanding the war into Cambodia, but for the purpose of ending the war in Vietnam and winning the just peace we all desire. So uh, Michael O'Donnell's 170th Ben Hoa assault helicopter company had what role in this change in policy? Well, several months before Richard Nixon made that announcement about the incursion in Cambodia, they were, the 170th was already in Cambodia. So Michael's mission from Khantoum, the base in the Central Highlands, was to fly special operations teams into Cambodia to conduct reconnaissance, primarily in preparation for the invasion that was to come. So the idea was these special operations teams of three or four American soldiers and a small group of Montagnard, uh, those were local communities of uh, very capable soldiers who served with the Americans, to bring these small teams into Cambodia uh, secretly by helicopter, and then they would spend several days on the ground in Cambodia trying to identify where enemy troops were, what the enemy strength was, and how to conduct a larger-scale invasion down the road. So Michael and his colleagues knew perfectly well that we were going into Cambodia. And it was very dangerous work. They were flying into enemy territory that was not sanctioned formally by the American government, so in the event any of these helicopters would be attacked or shot down, they were left where they, where they, they would not be, could not be recovered. So it was very dangerous work every day, and um, that's what O'Donnell was doing in March. And again, this announcement made by President Nixon was late in April. He wrote a poem uh, right before he died, and this I'm going to ask you once again to read this. It's captured in your book. It's called Docto. Yeah, so this poem Michael wrote just a few days before his helicopter was shot down in Cambodia. And by this time, he, it was fairly clear to him that the war was going to overtake him. And he wrote the following. I have tasted the air in the early morning before the sun and before the day. I have let it run all down my face and stain my clothes. And I have learned to wash myself with the part of the day that remains. I am dying in the sun at Docto. I am each day becoming less interested in the way the morning tastes 
and I am dying in the sun at Docto. And I am dying in the sun at Docto. Six days later, Michael O'Donnell's helicopter was shot down in Vietnam, in but Cambodia. He died a hero. Uh, what about that day uh, what would allow you or allow anyone to describe his, his particular decisions and actions as especially heroic? Well, because of the nature of the, the rescue mission that he was flying, there were many witnesses to what exactly happened. His job was, on that day, to fly with a whole group of other helicopters and fixed-wing aircraft to rescue a group of special operations commandos who were under attack in Cambodia by the North Vietnamese. They had radioed to their team that they were uh, hours away from being overrun. So the American military group of helicopters arrived on the site to rescue them on the ground in the mountainous area in Cambodia where they were. And because the commandos were not able to get to the landing zone very quickly, Ultimately, the mission commander on that flight was Jim Lake, Michael's good friend. And he made the decision to return to base back at Contum, to, at Docto, rather, to refuel. And he said to O'Donnell and two gunships, you stay on site here as long as you can, as long as your fuel holds out. We're going to go get fuel and come back, and then we will make the, the rescue. We will do the... Jim Lake's helicopter would be the one to land on the ground to recover these troops. That was the plan. So Lake and the others left, and O'Donnell was hovering in the sky about a 1,000 feet above the action. And the gunships were also there. And it became clear that uh, the time had run out for the commandos, and so uh, the commandos on the ground signaled up that they really needed to be rescued right away. So the gunships came in and did the best they could to clear the site of enemy, the enemy. And then Michael O'Donnell, with his crew in his helicopter, went down into the, beneath the jungle canopy and into the ground in the valley of this area in Cambodia to rescue these men by himself. That was never done. Normally what would happen is there would be a team of helicopters helping each other and supporting each other to make sure that they were safe. But because there was no one else there and it had to be done, O'Donnell made the decision immediately that he would rescue these men. So he went down to, to, uh, into the landing zone area and he hovered on the ground for four minutes, waiting for the, the reconnaissance team to arrive there, which is in a battle condition in eternity. It's a very long time to be sitting vulnerable to the enemy. But he, he waited. The reconnaissance team arrived, injured but safe. They boarded the helicopter, all of them. And O'Donnell began to pull the helicopter up above the tree line and radioed, I have, all, I have everyone, I'm coming out. As he did that, Jim Lake and the rest of the helicopter teams had arrived on site. There wasn't anything they could do because the rescue was in midway. So they saw all of this unfolding. And as O'Donnell's helicopter gained altitude and began to move forward, it was basically shot out of the sky by a missile from the side of the, uh, the mountain in the valley. And the helicopter dropped beneath the jungle canopy in flames. How many souls were on board that lost their lives in that mission? There were eight commandos. So there, was, there were the five Montagnards, the three Americans, and then O'Donnell and his crew were four men. So 12 altogether were on board the helicopter that uh, fell from the sky and burst into flames. So Jim Lake tried as best he could to fly over the site and see if re a rescue was possible, but there was enemy fire everywhere. And then he had to make the very fateful decision, the most horrible decision one has to make, to abandon the site. So he commanded all the other helicopters and his own crew to leave the site because it was unsafe. They were under attack. There was no way to get to O'Donnell's helicopter. So they flew back from Cambodia, back to the base at Docto, never to return.
As Jim Lake said, it was a fateful decision. It was the hardest decision he made in his life, and he was 19 years old at the time he made that decision. So Michael O'Donnell and all of those on board became missing in action in the Vietnam War? They were. Because there was no way to identify the site or to determine whether anyone had survived, they were listed as missing in action. And that was the case until the site was eventually uh, identified and recovered in 1998. You, you also tell us in the book the, the, the stories of how um, the recovery efforts unfold in the United States. From 1973 <coughs> to 1985, you uh, tell us there were no attempts at recovery of any of the MIAs. Is this just in Cambodia or throughout Vietnam? Throughout. And why was that? By the time the war had ended, by the mid-1970s, first in 1973 when the United States withdrew, and then in 1975, in April of 1975, when Saigon was overrun and the war was completely lost, the South Vietnamese were overrun, and the North Vietnamese won the war, the American people had really had it with Vietnam. There was a desire to turn the page and move on. Gerald Ford made that abundantly clear in his own uh, statements as president, that it's time for us to turn the page and move forward. I think people were ultimately exhausted by the drama and tragedy of the war in Vietnam. So for the next decade, more or less, there was very little discussion about the war. Uh, there was some scholarly work being written. There were, there were examples here and there. But the American movement to revisit the war did not, took more than a decade. However, there is and still is a very active uh, POW MIA activist group in this country pushing for Americans to, to continue to identify and find uh, the remains of, and repatriate them. How uh, impactful was that group of people uh, to the eventual decision by George H.W. Bush to establish a formal process and budget for it? They were very impactful. They were extremely dedicated, hardworking, and thoughtful. They knew how to, how to create political change. They were very good advocates for their cause, this group. And they continued to advocate. So I think that the, they were extremely effective. There were two things, I think two phenomena, that really changed everything in the mid-1980s that led to this decision by the president. One was this group who advocated for the recovery of MIAs. And the other was the increased rise in visibility of popular culture around the war. Films and books that were beginning to appear in large numbers that began to engage the American public in a greater interest in revisiting the war and the tragedy, and particularly the impact of that war on the people who fought the war. That was not the major theme in the 1960s. The, the, the themes were about democracy and communism, Cold War and containment, but in the 1980s, it was about the tragedy of what happened to those who were left behind. How long did it take for Michael O'Donnell's remains to be found, identified, and then ultimately have his remains buried in Arlington Cemetery? So by the middle of the 1980s, the, when this recovery group was, was put in place by President Bush, there began to be a series of missions undertaken to find the remains of lost American servicemen. And O'Donnell's helicopter was on the list of... of um, casualties that should be investigated because a fair amount was known. They knew where in Cambodia the helicopter went down roughly. So there were various attempts that were made to try to find the crash site beginning in the mid-1980s. They were all unsuccessful because the site was so remote. But by 1998, the site was located by a Cambodian and, uh, and North Vietnam, or a Cambodian and Vietnamese recovery team. They first 
identified the location, and then the Americans came in to excavate along with the Cambodians. That work was done in 1998, in the dry season in March of 1998. And this is all recounted in the book, the, how this team identified the site and the work that goes into effectively finding the remains of humans who were lost in a tropical jungle decades before, and where the remains that survive might be very small bone fragments or a single tooth. From the time of his death until the time he was buried, had his poetry be begin to become more popular and more well-known? Yes. It, it, almost immediately, Michael's poetry was discovered in his footlocker. Shortly after he was shot down and the grim task of having to return his personal effects to his family, they opened his footlocker and his friends saw this, his typewriter and his poems that were in a file called Letters from Pleiku. And several servicemen copied those poems right away and began to circulate them. A British journalist who happened to be on the site named Brian Benton, he brought those poems back with him to the UK, to London, and some years later they were published in a, a newspaper in, in London. So by the, within a few years of Michael's disappearance in 1970, his poetry was already pretty well known. And it just had a, it just continued to find an audience in one way or another on its own in the after effects of the war. Statistics from the war in Vietnam that you write about. Uh, in Vietnam, there were 2.7 million American soldiers who ultimately served in that war. Yeah. 58,220, as you mentioned earlier, killed, whose names are memorialized in Washington on the Vietnam War Memorial. 150,000 American soldiers who were wounded, 75,000 of them severely. Two million plus Vietnamese killed, and U.S. budget estimated at about $600 billion. Um, so what are the lessons from all of that blood and treasure invested in that war? Well, I think the greatest lesson is the one we continue, it seems, to need to revisit, and that is when one makes a commitment, when our leaders make a commitment to engage in military conflict, first of all, it's very difficult to stop. Once you begin, it's very difficult to stop, unless you demonstrate extraordinarily high levels of courage to acknowledge that a decision might not have been the right one. This we have seen in both President Johnson and President Nixon was very difficult to do. And that human life is, uh, should be valued more highly than it is by our political leaders. In this time, in the time of the 1960s, as soldiers were being sent to Vietnam, it was abundantly clear to any thoughtful person, including President Johnson, that this policy was not likely to be successful and that these soldiers who died were not likely to have to be able to advance the cause he was fighting for. There is a very powerful recording Lyndon Johnson made in a conversation with McGeorge Bundy very early on in his presidency where he said, I don't know what we can get out of this war. This is going to be hopeless. This is, I just, I, I, once we go in, I don't know how we're going to get out. This just seems like a hopeless cause to me. At the time he said that, 400 Americans had died in Vietnam. And by the time the war ended, 58,000 died. That's a lot of casualties for a cause that was seen to be failure right from the start. That's the greatest lesson. When you make a decision like that, be right. Be careful. Think the implications through as thoroughly as you can. And imagine that it's someone in your family who's going to fight that war on your behalf. In the month that we're talking, after a three-year legal battle for freedom of information, the Washington Post has published what's been called as the Afghanistan Papers, which are the transcriptions of conversations produced by the government on the war in Afghanistan. And I'm wondering what your 
thoughts were when you saw that, once again, the information going to the public about the war was very different from what our political and military leaders understood? Well, it's really heartbreaking because all of us who had anything to do with the Vietnam War, who lived through that one way or the other, felt that more than anything else, this war will teach us not to make that mistake again. And ultimately, I think, in my own view, and I explored this in the last chapter of this book, that I think this book is as much as anything else a reflection on leadership. And I'm a believer that our leaders need first and foremost to have signs of integrity and character. Because ultimately, the kind of experience they have or the kind of knowledge they have will, for, will fall short of what they need to know to be effective leaders. They always have to learn on the job. What matters most is the ability to make decisions from a position, from a point of view of integrity and a commitment to transparency to the people who elected you. And none of these people demonstrated that capacity to the level that was necessary to protect human life or, or the interests of our society. So what we should be voting for are people who have character. That's my view. You mentioned the lessons of Vietnam. What were the um, ultimate effects on American society? I think one of the greatest effects was that ultimately everyone who, who was aware of the war at the time came to understand the sense of betrayal that the American government engaged in against them. And for those who were assiduous supporters of the government in the 1960s, and there were many who felt, my country, right or wrong, I believe in my president, I believe in my government, that's my patriotic obligation. When ultimately Robert McNamara himself, the Secretary of Defense, published in his own book, in retrospect, that he knew and they knew the war was going to be a failure and that they knew that they were making commitments they could not justify, everyone recognized at that time that the government had failed them. And I think one of the great consequences of the 1960s is the sense that government must be questioned with skepticism, that we must think carefully about who we elect to these roles because they have power that can be exercised in ways that is not in the best interest of the American people. That's probably the greatest takeaway, and that's why the tragedy of Afghanistan today is so compelling, because we seem not to have learned that lesson. You said that you've become friends with the people who were close friends and Michael O'Donnell's sister. What was their reaction when you told them, I'm going to make this into a book? Well, in the first instance, my conversation was with Marcus, whom I tracked down. He was a retired school teacher at the time I found him living in Milwaukee. And he was very supportive of the idea. We bonded right away as, as um, friends. And he, of course, believed deeply that Michael's story is a compelling story and should be told. He saw the, the power of that story uh, in all kinds of ways that was important. We then went together to meet with Patsy, and I began to explore what might go into such a project. And I think Patsy, was, Patsy had spent most of her adult life as the steward of her brother's legacy. She was the one who provided oversight over the use of his poetry. She was the, the surviving child who had to deal with both parents who never learned in their lifetimes. They never found out what happened to their son. All they ever knew was what they heard and what they read in the telegrams that were given to them just in the weeks following Michael's disappearance. So she was responsible for that legacy. And when I arrived with Marcus, whom she, of course, knew well, she was gratified, I think, that someone else would want to carry this burden and take on this responsibility that she felt so close to. So she gave me all of these materials associated with her brother's life that I think in many ways 
was very heartening for her to see that finally someone would take an interest in this story. And then for the years I was writing this project, writing this book, she was incredibly helpful. She would respond to every inquiry, every silly question. What was the name of your dog? Remind me of where you lived in Shorewood. And she had inexhaustible patience and support for the project. And perhaps the greatest uh, satisfaction for me in writing this book, when I sent her the manuscript after I had written it and it had been, was ready to go, she said, finally, I have peace. And to me, that felt like um, that's why I wrote the book. And a gift to the people who loved him, ultimately. Uh, yes, I, and a gift to the people who loved him and who knew how important his story was. So uh, all of this has gathered, all of his work has been gathered into a website. What will people find there, and what's the web address? The web address is inthattime.com, the title of the book. And one will find more of Michael. There are photographs of Michael from his childhood and from the years he was in Vietnam. But most important, there is Michael's voice. Because Marcus was the best friend anyone could ever have, Michael sent Marcus tape recordings of letters. In those days, he had a fancy tape recorder where he would make music and write letters or dictate letters. And Michael's letters were preserved on tape, and, and they are present on this website. So you can listen to Michael talking to Marcus about his music, talking about the war, telling jokes, and you get a sense of who this wonderful character was, his warmth, his sensitivity, his sense of humor. It's all there. So if you want to learn more about Michael O'Donnell, go to inthattime.com. And in the minute that we have left, you tell us uh, that you have been a scholar all of your life. You've run universities. You now run the New York Metropolitan Museum of Art. Did this project change you? It did. I, I, first of all, I got to know someone who, who's um, eminently worth knowing, and that is Michael O'Donnell, but also Jane Hogue and Marcus Sullivan and Patsy McNevin. They're very close friends. Uh, most important... I was too young to fight in the war, but I lived through it as a kid in the 1960s and early 70s. I wanted to understand better what happened in that time, and I think I have. We're going to close, Daniel Weiss, uh, by going to that website, and we've picked one of, of uh, Michael O'Donnell's songs to close by. As we listen to that, what, uh, can you give us a brief introduction to what his music sounds like? Michael and Marcus were folk singers in the early 1960s in the spirit of Peter, Paul, and Mary, uh, or the Mamas and Papas. And so you'll hear songs that are joyful, beautifully composed. They harmonized really well. And they're looking forward to a time uh, ahead of them that was not to be, but a time of happiness and love. And that's what they wrote about in the early 1960s. Thank you for your time for this past hour. Appreciate the conversation. Thank you. And as we close, we're going to listen to Michael O'Donnell and Marcus Sullivan in one of their songs written during the Vietnam era. No one Q&A programs are available on our website or as a podcast at cspan.org. Can't remember good times, so I'll take a look.
On next week's Q&A, we'll sit down with Donald Ritchie, historian emeritus of the U.S.